This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Tear Fund's Footsteps magazine and Aruka Network. In this episode, we're going to explore what it really means to love your enemy. It often seems a strange and countercultural idea, so I've been asking why it's important, how you can do it in practice and what its impact can be on ourselves and on the people around us. And I've been putting these questions to a man who's got some really interesting answers. My um, grandfather on my mother's side, he used to have a saying. He used to say, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. That was the voice of Alistair McIntosh, who is often described as one of the world's leading environmental campaigners. In his native Scotland, he has led successful campaigns against large quarries and in support of community land ownership. He's a writer of various books on building community and on climate change, and his work as a campaigner and writer is rooted in his faith. He is a Quaker, he writes a lot about the teachings of Jesus and other religious and spiritual leaders, and he's also a writer about what he calls spiritual activism, which is something he's spoken about on a previous episode of this show. His most recent book, which is called Riders on the Storm, details some of his encounters with what you could call his enemies, but what he would rather call his adversaries in the area of climate activism. In the interview you're about to hear, he'll describe some of these encounters, but he will also share his own really fascinating and helpful reflections on what it means to love your enemy. So let's get straight into the interview now. And I began by asking Alistair, first of all, to tell me why he wrote this book, Riders on the Storm. In 2008, I published an early book called Helen High Water about climate change. And because COP26, the United Nations Conference of the Parties, meaning the heads of government, basically, is going to be gathering one mile from where I'm speaking to you in November of this year, as it is now, my publisher asked me if I would write another book that would bring us up to date with where we are in the climate change but in particular, set a vision for the way forward for humanity. Because climate change is about more than just the science and technology, the politics and economics. We're only going to be able to have the motivation to act and also the ability to live humanely or relatively humanely with what is already coming upon us if we deepen in our humanity. So that's why the subtitle of Riders in the Storm is The Climate Crisis and the Survival of Being. That is to say, of human beingness, but also 
of all life on Earth. Alistair then told me how the first four chapters of the book are basically about the climate change science. The last three chapters are about his vision for what a communal and spiritual response to climate change looks like. But it's the middle two chapters of the book that I really wanted to ask Alistair about because they explore two different groups of people that he's encountered in his work and which most closely resemble what you might call an enemy. The first are climate denialists, and the second are climate alarmists. I asked Alistair to explain what he means by each of these terms. Now, to take the first of those, climate change denialism is basically the people who used to say that global warming isn't happening, and now that they can no longer deny it, it's ridiculous they basically come up with excuses like it's too expensive to do anything about it, so we just have to live with it. One way or another, they're trying to push it out of the way because they don't want it to disturb their affluent ways of living and their privilege in the world, the way in which they live in such a way that continues to cause this problem that impacts upon the poor of the earth. So I deal with that in one chapter, looking at what their psychology is and um, the, the you know how we need to f- tackle that way of thinking. But that is no longer such a problem because climate change is now so overwhelmingly obvious that a lot of them have gone very quiet. What I've tackled in the following chapter on rebellion and leadership in climate movements is a slightly different problem, which is a problem of overstatement. If you overstate a case, if you cry wolf too quickly or too often, you lose credibility. And I, like a number of other people involved in the climate change debate, particularly scientists involved in it, have been concerned that we have to be careful in our climate activism not to exaggerate. Now, what do I mean by exaggeration? I mean the sort of people who are saying that we are facing imminent human extinction, that people growing up now are likely, you know, in the even in a country like this, are, are likely not to see through to a natural end of their life, that we face social breakdown in most countries of the world by the middle of this decade, um, even, you know, one retired professor of ecology um, in America, um, McPherson, saying that we're going to see human extinction. He puts his bets on human extinction. And I get a lot of people coming to me at talks, people who listen to these things and are deeply worried by it. And they come and say, you know, are we really going to go extinct by 2026? And I have to say to them, you know, that doesn't add up with the science. And then they will say, yes, but maybe it's a good thing we're given a fright and we're made to sit up and pay attention. And I say, well, yes and no, because the problem with that way of looking at it is that if our side of the argument, the side of the argument that sees the climate crisis as being something we must take very seriously, if we make predictions that in just a few years' time clearly are shown to be not true, we discredit future activism. And we also alienate many of those who might have been brought on board when they realise that they had been sold 
an exaggeration. In a moment, you'll hear Alistair tell me what can happen to each of us if we don't try to love our enemies. But first of all, I wanted to get a sense from Alistair how he engages with these two different groups. So here's an example of an encounter with a climate denier. If you take, for example, the English ecologist Peter Taylor. Now, he's one of these people whose love of nature is such that the idea of large areas of countryside being given over to wind turbines and solar panels fills him with dread. But consequently, it led him to write a book in 2009 called Chill, which for a while was the Amazon bestseller on global warming. And basically, he put the argument, and I'm quoting here, the period 2002 to 2007 marks a turning point. And then glaciers will begin to grow and ice mass begin to accumulate again, thus levelling off the sea level rises. So here's the guy who had huge traction back then. Now, ECOS, the um, journal of the British Association for Nature Conservationists, organised a debate between me and him. And basically, I said to him, Peter, you're not a climate scientist. I'm not a climate scientist. What makes you think that you know better than them? And he was convinced that he did and that he was as good a judge of the science as anybody else. And so his book gave reassurance to a great many climate change deniers that it wasn't happening. And if anything, the next ice age was on its way. Now, your question to me was, how do you respond to your, you use the word enemy, I'd use the word adversary. I would see Peter as being a worthy adversary. And just to give you an example of that, I have here on page 86 of Riders in the Storm that I contacted Peter while I was writing about it. He made no reference back to his previous predictions and instead To my astonishment, he wrote to me of record warmth, just as we could expect, and that it's likely to continue for the next two or three centuries. So the next ice age is now no longer just around the corner, but three or four hundred years away. Now, how do I respond to that? Because, you see, Jake, I'd spent, you know, I spent a lot of time in the ECOS debate wrestling with him over this matter, and then all of a sudden he changes his tune. Well, this is how I responded. This is the paragraph with which I closed that. I scratched my head and I gave a weary nod to all those hours spent on the great debate. Probably no point getting back to say that the effects of current CO2 concentrations will likely linger on for many thousands of years and not just a few hundred. In my mind, I wished him well. Every one of us is on a massive learning curve in this game, and I left it there. So what you see me doing there is clearly confronting the situation, being very clear that here is somebody who had made these predictions that he himself is now backing off, although without directly acknowledging it. And yet, at the same time, recognising, you know, we're all wrestling with this issue. It's bigger than any of us. It's no wonder if it distorts some folks' minds, because they would rather find ways of thinking it's not happening. And we can either treat that by simply mocking them, as I could have 
Yeah, I could have written in mocking tones of Peter there. Or you can just say, you know, each one of us is on a massive learning curve, and I left it there. And where he takes it from there, that's part of his journey. It's not my journey, unless, once again, I get called into debate with him over it. So you said there in your mind you wished him well, and, you know, in, in the book you describe other other encounters with these two different groups, these alarmists and these denialists. Um, I'm just curious... I know you're you're a Quaker, um, and yes, you know the the teachings of Jesus are important to you. I I just wonder this this idea of loving your enemy is it something that shapes your encounters and how you go into these encounters with people? Hugely, hugely so, Jake. Um, because you know, if you don't quote love your enemy, then in your engagement with your enemy, you start to take on their own likeness. As Walter Wink, the great American theologian, in his book, Engaging the Powers, says, if we engage with our adversaries in the way they engage with us, sooner or later, we will start to take on the likeness of the beast. Have you seen that happen? So... Yes, I see it happen in activists who become twisted and bitter with their hatred of their opponents. And I think, you know, your your righteous indignation is actually turning you into an unpleasant person. And you're using your righteous indignation as a way of giving vent to your own shadow side. You're projecting out onto, you know, whether it's a climate change denier or even the corporation of the government, perhaps a government that you have participated in electing, perhaps a corporation whose products you nonetheless buy. You're projecting out onto them your own unresolved stuff. And that is not healthy for the cause. It's not healthy for you either. And so I see people disappearing into a kind of bitterness and losing the ability to build bridges, losing the ability to, they retain the ability to polarize, but they lose the ability to bring people together. And, and with something like climate change, we're not going to be able to deal with that in a polarised world. You know, we're not going to deal with it if we become green fascists or whatever it might be. Uh, we have got to deal with it by working together. And when people say to me, well, that's not going to work fast enough. That's not quick enough. I say, well, you know, by what political means do you propose? And are you proposing to operate within democracy? And if not, if, you know, as one climate activist put it to me, perhaps we need a little bit of authoritarianism. I say to them, well, has it occurred to you that there might be people on the other side of the argument who are rather better at doing authoritarianism than people like us are? And, you know, if we legitimise that course of action, what are we opening up? Um, I think that's a really good account of 
you know what happens when we when we don't love our enemy um you you talked you've you've spoken about treating our adversary as as worthy and you talked about the importance mm. importance of working together but the, the, mm. the, this this line about loving your enemy seems to be a sort of a different thing i mean it it, it sort of sounds it sounds a bit probably to a lot of people bonkers what what does what does it mean what does this love thing mean is it's something different to treating mm. people as worthy and working with <laughs> oh my goodness jake i mean you pulled me into a very deep spiritual ground there i can only answer <laughs> your question spiritually you see uh, because, um, oh my goodness me, I think of Ram Das, the great American, um, great late um, American um, Jewish Hindu spiritual teacher. And he tells how his guru said to him, Ram Das, two things, love your enemy and tell the truth. Tell the truth and love your enemy. And he said, how can I do that? You know, I need to tell the truth to my enemy. And how can you do that loving? Well, Raymond Panica, the great Indian, Spanish, Catholic, Hindu theologian, he said, only forgiveness breaks a law of karma. Only forgiveness breaks a, breaks a knock-on effect. You know, you confront your, quote, enemy, and that has knock-on effects. You've got to do that with forgiveness. And so coming back to Ram Das again, Ram Das says, do what you have to do with people, but keep your heart open to them. Now, what I do, whether it's with climate change deniers or with alarmists from within the climate change movement, for example, the way that I um, address the work of um, Roger Hallam or Jem Bendel in the book is... I say what I have to say, but I also try to say it in a way that is appreciative of what they're trying to achieve. How do you do that? How do you try try to hold that attitude within your mind? I, I think you've got to ask for that power of forgiveness. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, that central petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, whichever version you have. But what it's about is it's a recognition that we actually have to inwardly ask spiritually for that ability to forgive so that we do not get caught up in the law of karma, so that we do not get caught up in becoming the likeness of the beast from the actions that we are engaging in. As you can hear, we're getting onto theological and spiritual ground here. So I was curious to ask Alistair if he felt that in order to love your enemy, it was necessary to have a religious faith. I don't think it needs an overt faith in the sense to be a Catholic or a Protestant mm. or a Hindu. But I think it does require a spirituality. It requires a depth of heart that is able to take on what it means to be accepting of others, what it means to be accepting of difference. And you can only do that by getting to know others and gaining an appreciation of them. To take another example in the book, uh, one of the people of whom I'm gently critical is Rupert Reid, the, the green political figure who at the time was a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. I'll just briefly pause the interview here 
in case you're wondering, Extinction Rebellion is an environmental movement established in the UK in 2018. Let's get back to Alistair. And an incident in which he stood up on a desk in front of a classroom of school children on video and told them it wasn't a question of what they were going to do when they grew up, it was a question of if they grew up. And you may recall there was some outrage amongst climate scientists for that kind of alarmism. And that led Rupert and I, my writing about it, led Rupert and I into discussion. We had a telephone call and then we agreed, you know, it would be a good idea to make this discussion public. We had such a good discussion together by telephone that we decided to make it public. So if you go on my web homepage itinerary, you'll see somewhere there the video recording of the Zoom we had together where we hammered out, if you like, our differences on that. But the consequence of that was that we emerged from it with many of our differences still intact. You know, fixing the differences is, in a sense, a small issue. But the greater issue was that we emerged from it with a deeper friendship and respect for each other. And that you know, showed through in a, a subsequent um, follow-up telephone discussion or Zoom discussion that we had privately together. So, you know, I think that's the kind of thing where, that's a kind of reality, that's what it looks like that we're talking about. My um, grandfather on my mother's side, he used to have a saying, he used to say, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. <laughs> And, you know, they say it's the same, you know, people who have a problem with racism or prejudice against homosexuals or whatever it might be. The first question to put always is, well, have you met such people? Have you got to know them? And if you have, then we can have this discussion a bit differently. But until we make the effort to get to know our adversary, and, and to me, that is what loving your enemy in practical terms is about, you can't do that. Now, you know, does that equate into an actual feeling of love or affection towards that person? I think that's where the grace comes in. You, you, love is not something you can just turn on as an act of will. As I see it, love is a charism. It is a gift of grace. It is a spiritual thing. And that is where going into the deeper realms of loving your enemy in my view, does require a spiritual journey. That that line, I don't, I don't know that man. I must get to know him better. Is um, <laughs> brilliant. It, it does make me think. So, so in your book, you describe a, a scientist. I think he's called Michael Mann. Um, yeah. And you talk about how he's been really harassed by uh, climate denialists. I think, and he spent years yeah. in and out of court. Um, yeah. Mm. What would you say that that line was it your grandfather did you say um said that yes line? it was my grandfather and um and uh, you know that was one of my mother tells my late mother tells me that was one of his things you know i don't he said i don't like that man gene i must get to know him better Do, would you say that to i mean say say this michael man scientist guy comes to you for advice when he's being hounded um yeah would you would you say that to him? Or you, you, you know, you need to get to know your enemies better. Or what? How would you counsel someone someone like that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, 
I would say try to, and it's not always possible, you know. If you're being had up in a court of law, you get caught up in legal process that can preclude that kind of thing. That is why, you know, I'm a Quaker, and in our book, Quaker Faith and Practice, um, in a section about law, it says, you know, try to avoid going to law if you possibly can. And always we're dealing with human limitations and this kind of thing. Uh, and that is why the forgive us, you know, um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is why the emphasis all the time on forgiveness, because we will not always succeed. There will be people who will be, you know, quite hurt and annoyed by what I've written about both climate change deniers and climate change alarmists. And I can say to them, look, I'm happy to talk with you any time in private or in a public forum. But, <laughs> you know, you, you love everybody, but you tell the truth. You don't, you don't love or try to love in a way that denies what you really think or denies debating the truth about the situation. Um. Speaking personally, I'll, I'll often, if I think of some, someone who's a, an enemy, an adversary, whatever you want to call it, I, I try yeah. to, I try to get beyond that that initial reaction of, of emotion, um, and try to <laughs> try to, I suppose, see myself in them. So, so what what is the cause of of what I see as wrong in them, and is it is yeah. it rooted in a fear mm. or a greed mm. or? Or, or yeah. one one of these human emotions that I have mm. I have in me. Mm. Um, oh goodness! Is, is is that? Do you think that's the best place to start? Well, it's all about understanding. You know, it's. I mean, I've just had an incident this past week, um, of helping somebody else deal with some a case of professional jealousy, in which the person instigating the issue in my view of it, was quite clearly professionally jealous of this other person and tried to stop her or is is stopping her from doing something that she needs to be able to do. And so, you know, I've kind of offered to mediate in the situation. It's probably beyond that just now. But also, you know, in in my discussion with the injured party, I've been saying, you know, what what is it in him that is causing this? And just trying to leave it at that, that there must be something injured in that person that is doing that. Now, it's not always easy. I had another case, um, something on Twitter the other day that was about domestic abuse, a study of domestic abuse. And I tweeted out that this is why here in Scotland the Scottish government is putting such emphasis on understanding what are called adverse childhood experiences, the kind of experiences in childhood that can be predictors of abusive behaviour in adulthood. And then I got attacked by somebody for making excuses for them. And you have to live with that. You know, there are people who do not want the causes of violence to be understood who don't want denial to be understood, it probably comes too close to home in their own life. I had another very weird one on the Twitter last week, actually, again, yeah, a very weird one, Jake. Um, somebody trolled me 
And sometimes I play a game that I call Troll the Troll. Now, in case you're wondering, a troll is someone who says intentionally provocative or controversial things to someone on social media in order to get attention or cause an emotional reaction. (laughs) What it involves is drawing the person who's trolling me into deepening their argument to the point where it becomes about the nature of our humanity and then introducing God into the equation. <laughs> and which I can tell you, I get very few trolls. I, get, <laughs> I put a lot of stuff out as controversial. <laughs> because I'm going to talk to them about God, it's kind of, I lose most of them. But at one point, I mean, do you remember the BBC TV comedy? I don't know how old you are, but um, <laughs> when I was a boy, there was one called Some Muzzles Do Have Them. I'm familiar with it, yeah. Okay, and at one point I used that expression, and my goodness me, it was a complete flip. And he said, you know, he said, my mother was an incompetent. I wasn't wanted as a child. My brother committed suicide when he was 21. Mm. And I said, you know, let's continue this by direct message. And I realised then that the guy was actually American, uh, he wasn't familiar with the phrase that I used. And I had unwittingly used a phrase that went straight to the heart of where his pain was. Wow. And I don't need to say any more about it, where it went to from there. But you see what I mean? You, 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 know, you, you, you turn over a troll and you find suffering humankind. Mm. You turn over an abusive person. I mean, I I live in a part of Glasgow where there is a lot of drug abuse, alcoholism, violence. And I'm involved in a project which is of the community. And, oh, the degree of what some people have suffered. And then you think, you know, no wonder they're angry. No wonder they're prejudiced or whatever. And how do you work with that? Well, you know, we share meals together. We go on outings together. Um, I take a group up to Iona each year and we hang out in the hostel and just talk about our lives and whether spirituality has any meaning at all or that kind of thing. Mm. What else can you do, Jake? And... I feel like my answers aren't good enough. You know, at the end of the day, a person's psycho-spiritual work is their own journey. It's not something we can do for them. We can only, as the American Quaker Parker Palmer puts it, hold spaces that are hospitable for the soul. Hold spaces where depth of soul can come out. And so when, when I kind of play troll the troll, you may aim in it. It's not to be abusive towards a troll, but to (laughs) deepen them into the humanity of the issue that they have been trolling on and to turn that round to the state of their own humanity. And my goodness, I can tell you the number of times that it's ended, what has started off as an aggressive confrontation has ended up in conviviality, usually agreeing to disagree, but in a in a way that has warmth to it. 
And I kind of think, well, you know, somebody's spiritual work is not my work. It, that is God's work. My role is just to take things on one step further and then the bird flies on. The depths we've gone to in, in the last 20 minutes or so is, t- t- to me, is so far removed from the the lack of depth that a lot of people <laughs> go to when when mm. they think of their enemy and and i'm i'm often oh, i'm often struck by it it's like find a label for them like okay we can label them racist and and that becomes an excuse to ask no more questions and i think um um i think one thing i've learned from reading your book your books sorry is is the importance of you know it's, it's not that dissimilar to like a a two-year-old child who's always asking why um it's 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 almost that that's what it is so it's not it's not enough you can't just label someone racist you gotta ask well well why 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 are they mm. why are they expressing that that point of view and, and keep asking that um mm. if people listening to this if they might be they might be really struck by what you, what you're saying and um really convinced but but what if they have people they know who who feel this way they feel comfortable in uh, labeling the enemy racist the Mm. adversary racist Mm. or or whatever and then aren't aren't willing to go further what what would you advise people how 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 to engage with people like that well i would say observe your inner state that arises from your outer actions and ask if the way in which you have dealt with an adversary leaves you inwardly at peace or if it leaves you inwardly agitated. Mm. The the book in which I most deeply deal with this is my previous one, Poacher's Pilgrimage, An Island Journey, where I'm walking for 12 days through my home island of Lewis and Harris and I'm reflecting especially on the 20 years or so of lecturing that I have done on nonviolence at military staff colleges. And so I lectured to them once a year in a guest lecture on nonviolence, right through the era of Afghanistan and Iraq into Libya and so on. And privately, I would get soldiers, senior, this is senior soldiers we're talking about, coming up to me, basically in a confessional mode. I would say to them, so have you killed? What's it like to have killed? And I remember one year going up onto the rostrum, sorry, coming down from the rostrum after speaking. And there was just a moment where my minders weren't beside me. And this Air Force officer just came up and he said, let me tell you, I'm just back from Iraq and I feel defiled. Now, it's like in that situation, you've only got one shot. And I just let it come, just straight from somewhere I know not where. And I, I just looked him in the eyes and I said, whatever you might have done or might have seen, it is forgiven. Now get on with the rest of your life. And I walked on up to the rostrum and gave my lecture. And a response like that, it it kind of like it wasn't coming from me. It was, it, it felt like like a bolt from the blue coming from the divine. Now I have no idea where it left that man. But I've been in 
situations like that on a number of occasions and by drawing people out, you know, how does it feel to have killed? Said one man, I get more irritable than I used to. I don't sleep as well as I used to. And I feel the cold more easily. And I felt the chill and how Dante, in the deepest circle of hell, describes it not as a hot place, but a very cold place. And what, you know, what can you say to such a person? You, you can only touch them at a deep level in their humanity. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The, the, there's other questions I could ask, but I, I think, Alistair, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, thank you so much. And thank you to all your listeners for um, for being here and what you may be being and what that being may lead you into doing. So blessed be all of you. That was Alistair McIntosh, the writer and environmental campaigner. And in some ways, I feel we left the interview on a slightly sad note there. So I'll just play you this short clip of what Alistair told me after the interview. To set the scene, I asked Alistair what he's up to at the moment. And he told me about a big climate meeting that was soon to take place in Glasgow, COP26, it's called. And it's a meeting of governments around the world, and it's all about climate change. And he told me this. The United Nations has got 17 sustainable development goals. And, you know, I'm just writing something saying they're coming to Scotland, the home of golf, which has 18 holes. We need an 18th hole. Let it be community. We need to learn how to make community again. And community, you know, is not just an outward thing. It's not just another word for society. Community spiritually is about our membership one of another, our being branches on the vine of life. Community comes from a very deep spiritual place. And I think that's what we need in the world today. We need to understand our profound interconnection. Spirituality is our profound interconnection. Ultimately, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me, to frame it in a Christian context. And to let that spread out into what it means to be community. So there we go, Alistair McIntosh there. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go... Don't forget you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community, Aruka Network. And Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can learn more about Aruka Network on the website arukanetwork.org. You can learn more about Footsteps on the website learn.tierfund.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email, jake at arucanetwork.org. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.